when did you understand like this YouTube thing or these videos or um, really where the money's going to be? Six months to a year after I quit my job, probably. Oh. Maybe a year to two years. Uh, before so, well, I quit my yeah. job, it was a fun side gig. But well, when you quit your job, what do you think the focus was going to be? Like, where where were you going to get income? Well, that's the deal is I didn't have to. The de- my, my wife really? saw this and thought, I think this has long-term real potential. Tell you what, Ian, you quit your job and I will take over all the household expenses because she was working full-time. Where are these women in my life? <laughs> Arizona. <There's, laughs> yeah, right. There, there's a hitch. The hitch was oh. <laughs> when it became successful, I had to hire her away from her job. But so I looked at this. I'm like, that's a great deal because I'm never going to have to make good on that promise because I, I don't see it being like. That's right. so awesome, though, to have a yeah. woman that. Yeah. 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 Believes in, in what you're doing yeah. more than you. Absolutely. Like, that's so cool, that, man. That's, that's really. There is that leap of faith moment in any sort of entrepreneurial endeavor where it's, yeah, I think it's like a universal thing where you, you have to spend all the time on it, but it absolutely is not going to generate enough money at that point. Yeah. And you have to find some way or have some savings and just be like, yeah, here we go. I, I've uh, been to it through it two or three times. You know, this last time it was, it was interesting cause it was, I had the, like with the queue, the most to lose cause I had, more resources than I'd ever had, but you know, I was going to have to invest more. And so it's a bigger fall. Like if I failed and lost everything, (laughs) nobody wants to go back living with their parents. Yeah. But I also got to a point in my life where, you know, I'd had some money and I'd had freedom and these things. And it was like, I was talking about earlier. What's the worst can happen? Like, I just got to start over. I'm not going to starve to death. Like it's not, you might have to work for someone. Yeah, the worst thing is really not that bad. So why not take the chance on yeah. doing something else? Like, yeah. I have a question for you. Yeah. I know after AAC, um, you kind of had a couple different options to, to go. Mm-hmm. And I know that you went with SIG. When you decided, I'm done with this, I'm going to do Q, Was were you in that same, was it always you knew I'm going to do Q? Or did you have that idea of like, oh, maybe I'll go here, maybe I'll like... Maybe I'll try out one of the other companies or maybe I'll go help somewhere else. Or did you know I'm just going to do No, I mean, I mean, here's the honest truth. When I sold to Remington, I was doing well. And I didn't really need money, but there, there was a couple factors. My parents were getting older and it was enough money to ensure that, you know, I could take care of them forever. Um, I had young children and it was enough money to ensure that, if one of them ever got leukemia or something terrible happened, I would have enough money to take care of them. Um, that was one portion of it. And another big part to me was, you know, as it progressed, like when I sold to Remington, let's see, that was oh nine. So, you know, I'd had the company for like 15 years. Yeah. And, you know, I was starting to get real engineers like Ethan Lassard and, you know, I want to do more and more. I didn't want to just do silencers. I want to do guns. Well, that requires more capital. That requires, you know, more resources in every regard. And I wanted to do more, and I felt like we could make – I wanted to do guns and bigger stuff. And I, I wanted to make Remington like an American gun company, like the greatest gun company in the world. And I was fully committed. Like when I sold that, to me, I didn't have hopes of like becoming the CEO of Remington or making a billion dollars. Like I had enough money for the rest of my life and I wanted to not have to worry about that. 
and just be able to focus on work and have ammo resources. Remington had an ammo company. I wanted silencers to become very mainstream. And I felt like I was going to have to work so hard individually to make silencers very mainstream. And to kids your age, it probably Mm -hmm. doesn't even sound like a thing now, but you don't realize how when I was 20 years old, most gun stores thought silencers were illegal. No one owned silencers. Right. And I thought a mainstream gun company as conservative as Remington buying a silencer company and helping me to push silencers, they would become very prolific. You know, they were very close with the NRA. We could get support from the NRA because NRA fucking hated silencers back then. I mean, it was just kind of a real outcast thing. And so it really fit, you know, and I was still young. When I sold the company, I was 34, 35. And I wanted to do these things. And of course, you know, the, things were great for a year and then the next year was shit. And, you know, I mean, most people that will listen to this will know what happened. Entrepreneur sells company to giant bureaucracy <laughs> and is then surprised when he has no freedom to work on what he wants to work. Shocking news yeah. at 11. <laughs> yeah. Well, I actually wasn't surprised. I talked to a guy who was kind of a mentor to me who um, was about 15, 16 years old or was successful. So, um, and he had a really large company and he had purchased like he, um, ended up selling his company to Tootsie Roll, that family. So he owned Double Bubble, the candy company. I love that song. Tootsie Roll. Yeah. Yeah. I like it too. And, um, but he had done acquisitions and he had sold and all, and some advice he had to me, it was good. He says, and so I wasn't blind going into this. I was just, I'm always going to be, and I'm not going to let anything in my life, I think at this point, stop me from this romantic idea of, yeah, things are probably going to go to shit, but I'm going to put in my effort and try, and, and hopefully it, it works out the way I want. But if not, I take those lessons and I just move on. Um, but what he said to me was, be happy, don't sell the company unless you're happy with the money you get at the front end, because they're going to fuck you out. Uh, of whatever other money he says most likely that's going to happen and he's like and the more successful you are he says that's the thing with a big company too you have all these other executives where if you end up being very successful um they're going to hate you and sabotage you because you make them look bad like he he knew all this stuff ahead of time and he told me so it's in the back of my mind but i was you know but i was going to put forth the effort like to me i was a company man so anyway then when that happens i go through that lawsuit Mm -hmm. And I'm able to go back to work. And I felt the same way with SIG. But it was the same thing. Right, yeah. You know, and it's like a big company. It just doesn't move. You know, you're not as agile. And it's very frustrating. And, and um, yeah, I mean, I, I think at this point I understand I'm not going to go work for anyone else. But I was committed to it. And I was committed to it with SIG. I mean, I did tons of recruitment for SIG. That's paid huge dividends for them right now. You think about their ammo, yeah. their military programs. So that's all people I recruited. stood up the the silencer division essentially like I know John Hollister was already there and, and Ethan, but I mean, it wasn't, no, I, I think I hired John probably. Oh really? Once I was there. Oh, okay. I thought um, John and Ethan were there at this, like there and then you went, but I'm not sure. No, I don't think so. But you know, the guys in the military stuff, whether it's right. Robert Lindsay, all those guys I hired, I mean, I hired Lindsay there before I even worked there. Yeah. Um, and then Jason M Hoff for the ammo. And now they're getting the military ammo contract for that new round. Um, you know, I was committed and I believed in, in what we wanted to do, but you know, it's all, it's always the thing. When I went there, I, I, I'm very transparent in that regard and upfront about 
these are the things that I'll do. And, you know, Ron Cohen said the same thing. And, um, you know, um, the guys, George Calatides and Wally McClellan, the guys that kind of were in charge of Remington at the time, said the same things to me. And I meant mine, and they meant half of theirs. You know, and Ron, he meant what he promised me until it was uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And then it's, you know, Ron Cohen, it wasn't easy to just go back on his word. You know, and it's, I think it's people in general that can use the excuse of, oh, the economy, oh, the ownership, oh, this or that. And, um, so I've tried twice, like gave yeah. it real efforts and it's the same thing from both of them. And I don't need to do that again. Do you think it would have been the same? I anticipate it probably being the same if you had gone to HK or if you'd gone elsewhere. H and K is really where I wanted to go. And that's where I was intending on going. And, and, and Ian, you might not know this, but so it was uh, a British guy and a German guy that really owned H and K at the time. And this would have been like. 2012, 13, 14 in that time period. And um, they both lived in London. And um, so I was going to go there, but then it was just, and it was pretty cool. Like I loved H&K and their guns and live in London and then fly for basically two and a half days a week in their private plane from London. Yeah, tough that life. Sounds aw- that seriously sounds awful. Land in Obendorf. You know, it was so cool, too, because um, oh, okay. Andres, uh, the German guy, was married to an American girl, and they lived near Heathrow, and um, there's an American school there. And so they lived in this big old, like, castle thing and a bunch of land. And so the guest house, which I think had an indoor pool and stuff, and it was like 5,800 square feet or something. Thing. And it was the little guest house next door. So me and... My family, we're going to live in that, and the kids would go to the American school there that was down the road. But with the plane, so it was in Heathrow airspace, so you you take off, and you couldn't go above 1,500 feet, and so you'd fly all the way across, like, southern England, like all these beautiful estates. And then across there at Dover, you know, basically the, the channel, and then, you know, Calais, and then you fly, like, around Paris and into Obendorf. It was, like, the most beautiful flight you could take, to at low altitude. I thought you were going to cool. say live in, in London and then commute to the United States two days a week. Right. Yeah. That, like, oh. Yeah. No, no, no. no Going to Obendorf. I was going to yeah. work in, in Europe. And so, you know, I spent a couple months over there doing all that. But for them... Um, they were just servicing a lot of debt. They had made some bad decisions with the company. And I was just afraid there wouldn't be longevity there. I, I felt like they were going to lose the company at the time. Oh, yeah. And so I, I didn't want to take my kids over there. You know, like I really wanted to take them in, in to, to London and raise them over there at least for five or six years and then go to school there and have that experience. But I was afraid that was going to be like a year or two and – you know, like they would lose the company and I'd have to uproot my kids. So I didn't do it. Any regrets? Um, no, my, I think, you know, I, I was talking with Christine about this yesterday. Like, I think my only regret, like my kids don't listen to this, so it's fine. Uh, my only regret, I think in life out of everything so far was marrying their mother. Like that was like the only regret. Everything else that's happened is like I, I'm cool with. I learned. I mean, I learned from that too. But oh fuck, that's a lesson I didn't. But need But that's to learn. when you couldn't foresee. I mean, granted, you can't necessarily foresee any of the the regrets in life. But like, it'd be one thing to be like, oh, I regret not taking that opportunity at H and K or whatever. But 
the other one, yeah. you couldn't really foresee how that one was going to pan out. <laughs> well, I was, I was talking specifically about the HK because obviously the they H- didn't lose their company. Well, no, but, no, but what have they done? Sort, but they th- they were so crippled by the interest that they were paying, servicing their debt, that they couldn't do a lot of the innovation and stuff like that. And then I also saw that you had essentially the the, the people at H and K and Obendorf. I mean, it's just it's so they're such nationalists. Like they don't like the guns being shipped to other places. They hated the fact that there were foreigners that owned H and K. They hated the fact that the German owner lived in England. And like it was, it was very tense. I mean, I think Germans in general are very intense, but how could we possibly predict what the outcome might be of an American entrepreneur going to work for HK of all people? (laughs) I'm sure it would have been great. (laughs) Everyone would have been thrilled, roses and unicorns and rainbows. You would have gotten so much done. I think it's like a lot of other companies, you know, the employees to some degree don't understand like what the resources is required to run something like that. And so for me, what what I saw is H&K could develop a silencer division that they could sell to the rest of the world, product to the rest of the world. It was a, it was uh, a, just huge potential financially and the margins on them very good. And then also picking the stuff and developing the stuff for the U.S. commercial market because the ownership had no idea of like the american gun culture well one guy kind of did but in the potential of that and they didn't know what products to do there they didn't know who to listen to they didn't really trust h and k usa it didn't seem to me yeah. um so i thought there was huge potential to do a lot of good for the company and for me to make an impact and it would have been great in my opinion for the u.s gun market because the very first thing i wanted to do was the mp7 <laughs> over here yeah um you know and one thing that kind of and wayne touched on it you know and in our podcast was you know that was kind of developed and marketed as a you know armor piercing that little Mm 4.6 but you know the things that i wanted to do you know build the g36 over here and have that be a commercial gun you know there was just a lot of things that seemed to make sense that i think in hindsight would have been very successful and great for the company and the american gun buying public Here's my hot take. Nothing will ruin the MP7's reputation f- more and faster than a semi-auto American civilian that's, MP7. That's probably true. But what reputation do they have? Well, they're the, amazing. Everyone would love to have yeah. one because they're so cool. The people who didn't, the people who didn't carry them, think they're the greatest thing that's ever existed. I mean, I love the gun, and I know it's 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 either the most or second most reliable machine gun H and K's ever built. I think the G thirty six was the first, wasn't it? Yeah, it's it's. I don't know. I don't yeah. remember now which one was yeah. it. I I think that the MP seven might have been number one. Yeah. Maybe. But you know, there's so many cool things about the gun. But you know, it's one of those things where you design for a specific requirement. Then it's probably not going it, to. It's a potential of it not doing a lot of things very well. And I think that's a well, good I mean, example. Look at the P ninety. Like the P ninety. Look how successful that exactly. thing was commercially. Exactly. Similar idea, like gun, like caliber wise, all that. And it blew up in the US. Even with the stupid, ugly, long barrel, it yeah. still blew up. I think they were doing, I don't remember the numbers, but like, I'm going to make it up, but I think it was like 30,000 guns a month at some point they were selling on the US commercial market. A Gunquit Police Department, that is their, they don't carry hmm. M4s, they don't, they carry P90s. Hmm. It's yeah. It's weird. Duluth, right outside of Atlanta, Duluth PD had the 5.7 pistols and the yeah. P90s for a while. Yeah. 
I mean, I don't, I don't know. You, you know, it's, it, it's. I've had choices with the gun stuff, and I always want to do these bigger things. But then you got to work with more people and see right. eye to eye with them, and you're spending someone else's money. And it, you, you know, it's, it's amazing. I think eight six is a new cartridge we're doing, and I think we're gonna see it is more of an impact and more of. Uh, I think it's gonna make more of an impact on the commercial hunting and defense market than 300 blackout or anything else we've done and i i don't think even after commercializing doing 300 blackout getting adopted by the military and you know, i see the box lid there uh, this but i still don't think i could if i worked at a major ammo company or gun company i couldn't get them to do that so i yeah. think it's like stuff i gotta fund on my own it's okay i don't know i don't know I, I like being in control of it, Thomas, at least to that degree, where control meaning I get to decide what projects we're going to go after and what we're going to spend the money on that we're making and what's the next thing uh, where we can really make an impact and a difference. Like we talked earlier off camera about uh, B&T and all their guns. And, you know, my take on it is they took a bunch of 80s, 70s, 80s, 90s, like you know, blow back nine millimeters and made them in Switzerland and they look nice and they sell the shit out of them for $3,000 when you couldn't give a tech nine away for $300, you know, 25 years ago. Um, like, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do things. We just do for money. Like money's great. We got to have it, but I think it needs to come from innovation. Are you enthusiastic about modern firearms or are you just strictly, uh, old school? I like interesting firearms. So some modern stuff, yeah. Actually, I'm extremely excited about the 8.6. I think it's a really cool concept. Um, A lot of modern stuff is not particularly novel in any way, which is fine. It doesn't have to be. In in many cases, not being novel is a benefit. If you're trying to build something for a specific purpose and, and make it work commercially and economically, you don't have to reinvent the wheel to do it. But and those can be very successful guns, but they're not the ones that really interest me all that much. So, do you like that uh, that machine gun that's in like a, a briefcase where you carry it around? It's got a little like it's the got MP5? the muzzle sticking out the side of the briefcase. You're, and you're gonna have to be way more specific. There's like a bunch of those. There's a bunch of those. Yeah, there's well, a bunch of those. Thomas says there are only no guns that were. Uh, they're neat, but uh, kind of terrifying. Okay. Like the the Don't concept point is it the wrong way. Uh, heard a real interesting story from Jim Sullivan about exactly that. Where they almost killed John Wayne in a demo. Uh, no, that was a different one. Okay. <laughs> Similar problem. No, Sullivan was telling me they were experimenting with some spooky thing. It was a Whirbell. Yeah. Um, they wanted a remote controlled one. So they got one of those Mac briefcases and they hooked up a, a garage door opener remote <laughs> and a solenoid to the trigger. Holy and shit. and they're out at the range and they're going to test it. And all right, here we go. Put it down on the, on the bench. And the guy's got the button. Flips over. And when he hits the button, it falls over and then spins in a circle. Yeah. Holy shit. And, the, and he said, Sullivan said he could just, he watched it in slow motion. Just at, not enough time to do anything. And it ran out of ammo before it got far enough to, to kill anyone. <laughs> <laughs> All set. They did some wild and crazy stuff. Yeah. You know, Max Atchison, who I was close to, you know, worked there at the time and stuff. And, uh. And a guy named Don Thomas was their historian. Like Mitch Warbell was, what, what an interesting dude. There's a whole group of those guys. Like Atchison, 
John Foot. Yeah, John Foot. Um, and you see their work sort of show up, like the the Bushmaster assault rifles from mm-hmm. Foot. But it's that period where there are still a few people who have some firsthand knowledge of it who are there, but there's like nothing written. It's yeah. hard to, I, I'd love to try and dig into some more of that because some you, of what those guys doing were, was crazy weird stuff. Don Thomas is still alive and he's in Atlanta and he was the historian for them. Okay. And, and I think his business card one side says, you know, psionics because um, even before they went to military armament corporation, but he, he actually has written down the entire history. He was there the whole time. Um, and his son, just a little, little side note, his son was on the Jessica Lynch rescue. Oh, really? <laughs> yep. But wow. uh, Don is a super interesting guy. He was Max Atchison's best friend. But the other, so one side of his card says historian, and the other side says chief scrounger. <laughs> so he did like all those um, silencer patent books. We were looking at one last night. Uh, he put those together oh, cool. for Mitch when they were working on silencer designs to see what had been patented. Um, but the two of them would tell me like the, like stuff like you just talked about, like the craziest story. Like Mitch Warbell was like crazy and a genius, like just awesome adventurer sort of way. Like if he had been born, you know, like 500 years earlier, he definitely would have been a pirate or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but he had all kinds of crazy ideas. You know, like that Type 64 pistol I've got was his. You know, when he's dying in his bed in Powder Springs, they had a target set up out of his window and Max would take, you know, 32 auto ammo and take the 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 rim off the case so he could shoot it from his bed, you know, up until he died. That was one of his favorite guns. And just the stuff that they worked on like that. Yeah. Uh, do you, Ian, do you have any desire to um, work with a firearms company or advise or anything? Like, do you have any desire to do that or do you just enjoy what you're doing right now? Uh, I enjoy what I'm doing now. I get a lot of people who ask me like, oh, you should totally design a gun. Well, like you've seen so if, many of if them. If only it were that easy. And yeah, my kind of my answer to that is I've I've seen enough of these stories that I know how hard it is and how likely it is to succeed. Yeah. And that's like I see those odds. I don't want to put a ton of my time into the project yeah. with those odds. Have there ever been any uh because of what you've seen have there ever been any ideas that you were like I need to get somebody to do this? A few. Um uh, honestly, one of the biggest ones is Neofitu, that South African guy. Mm-hmm. Like, he is criminally underappreciated and just in a bad place for any of his cool ideas to get to a market. Yeah. Um, there are a few of those. I occasionally try to, like, try to pull some string and get something to happen. And it, I haven't had good luck so far. Yeah. Um, 765 French is back in production, though. So that's. Okay. That I'll. I'll I'll take some credit for that. Take one. all the credit. <laughs> he, he showed me a picture earlier. That was a French round, right? The that was a different seven six five French. Seven six five <laughs> by thirty five. Yeah, they experimented with the, their own replacement for eight Kurtz. Three hundred blackout is seven six two right. by thirty five. Right. Yeah. Damn. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd never seen that, but I mean, yeah, it makes sense. You want like back then would have been an intermediate yeah, cartridge, it's the quintessential intermediate cartridge, but in the existing bore diameter. Yeah. Like instead of the German eight millimeter and the eight Kurtz is a terribly designed round. It's way too big in diameter because they were just taking eight Mauser and shortening it essentially because that's easier than trying to design a whole new round from the ground up. Is that what the 44 shot, the Sturmgewehr? Mm. Yeah. Kurtz. Yeah. Yeah. But it's cool. It's got a proper shoulder at least, even though you got a big bolt face, but you're, you know, you could start with that, but, um, the problem is you end up with a magazine that's about a foot long for 30 rounds. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a real taper. Um, you get a good shoulder, though, which we don't get with 300 blackout. It's kind of a pain in the ass with that round. Um, Do you have a um, a favorite gun that you've ever no. handled? No. No? I'll have a favorite gun for a while, right? but I like novelty, yeah, and yeah. it wears off, and then I find the new cool thing. I guess, is there, is there a gun that you finally got your hands on that you, was very much like, whoa, this is... This is a big deal. FAMAS. My FAMAS, yeah. Mm. Yeah. And the other thing about the FAMAS is usually if there's a gun that's hard to find and they're rare and they're exotic and they're cool and I'm interested in them, there's usually a very good reason that it's not common. Yeah. It usually is actually <laughs> terrible yeah, somehow. Yeah. And the FAMAS was really fun in that it's actually a great gun. Yeah. Uh, it's limited in today's environment because there's no good way to put optics on it. Mm. But if you were to tell me to pick an iron-sighted, intermediate you know assault rifle i would take the m16a1 first but the famas probably number two really yeah so you don't mind the bullpup ergonomics it balances beautifully how's the trigger um not bad by bullpup standards right um frankly compared to a lot of the old mil spec m16s it's pretty comparable yeah um completely ambidextrous you can swap the bolt the ejection to left-handed without any spare parts oh yeah Every, everything you need to swap it is already built into the gun. You literally, so the inside of the bolt face is a removable part and it's got an extractor and a dummy extractor and you pull the thing out and you swap the two and then there's a cover plate on the receiver. Swap. So, or on the butt plate, the receiver itself has two ejection ports cut and then the plastic butt plate covers one of them and you just swap the cover to whichever side you want. The safety's ambidextrous, the charging handles on the top and ambidextrous. Is the extractor in the same place, or are there two extractors? Uh, there's two extractors, one ejector. The ejector okay. is 6 o'clock, and the extractors uh, are okay. like 10 and 2. Huh. Um, yeah, it's recoil impulse is nice. The handling is beautiful. The iron sights are really good. Like, I took that thing to a practical match, and I was making silo- like mini Ipsic silhouette hits at 400 meters in open terrain with it, with the irons. Um, the bipod on that thing is free-floated. Oh, yeah. That's not something you realize until you pull it apart. And you're like, there's this receiver extension that supports the handguard and in turn supports the bipod. And it's mounted essentially to the chamber. And the barrel's free-floated inside that thing. Mm-hmm. So you can load the bipod on the FAMAS and not, not mess up your point of impact. Expensive gun to build, I imagine. Yes. I think largely because of where it was made. Like, if you'd given it to... Uh, like the Brazilians to make, it would have been fairly cheap, but you're talking about making it in France in the sixties, seventies cost of labor is high. Yeah. Um, that's the thing. Like when there was a period of time when FN owned uh, Saint-Étienne and that's the, the reason that there are no real commercial, like no military exports of the FAMAS is that the, the, oh, the corporate group that owned FN bought Saint-Étienne. And so then they've got two, two rifles that fulfill the same role competing against each other, the FAMAS and the FNC. And the FNC was the much more economical gun to make. Cool. And so they essentially just killed the, the FAMAS. That's not the part of Saint-Étienne they were interested in. And they didn't want it competing against the FNC. Hmm. Well, they didn't have great success with that gun, did they, the FNC? It's like the AK-5, the Swedes. Yeah. I mean, they sold a lot of them. Like, if you weren't comparing it to the FAL, it'd be a, a very successful gun. Oh. But 
compared to the foul. You're I like, didn't, oh, well, you know, didn't know that many countries had it. Um, well, it's a few countries, but then there were two or three countries that made it under license, and the countries that did buy it bought like fifty or hundred thousand of them. Oh wow, yeah, that's a lot. Oh yeah, it's in heat. Mm. And there's that. Oh yeah, yeah it's about it's, no, it's no. A, they sold it's one so to the exciting. LAPD apparently. Oh really? Well, that. Oh yeah, yeah, that one. Yeah. yeah. Is it Al Pacino's? Yeah, yeah. Pacino's character yeah. has the the FNC. Okay, so doing the videos, how do you? Uh, so you you and James Rupley do books now. Headstamp. Yeah. Headstamp yeah. Publishing. Yep. So how'd you guys meet? Um, I actually met James by when I started doing some work for Vickers Guide. Yeah, so so he does all what the photography for Vickers Guides. Yeah, book? oh, it's so, incredible what a photographer uh, he is. Unbelievable. Um, and what happened was I was helping Larry Vickers on I think it was the World War Two the first volume World War Two German, um, because like I know some stuff about some of that, mm-hmm. and so they hired me to write of some sections of the book, and to come help do the photography because. Uh, having done it now, especially there's a lot of physical effort that goes into actual gun photography of moving the guns in and out, up and down. We're going through, we're doing a lot of volume of photography in a, you know, day or two. Mm. And there was also an element of like, I'm helping to advise on what do we want detailed pictures of? Right. Right. So, uh, part of the deal was like, I'm going to get paid by Vickers guide. I'm going to come help write some of the book and I'm going to help out with the photo shoots. And so I'm sitting there on a photo shoot with James. And this is about the time that I've started writing my own book on French rifles. And at the time, my goal was I want to be, I want to have a book published by collector grade. That's, oh, collector grade. that's my yeah. bucket list thing. Like who's, what's the most prestigious publisher in this field at the time? Yeah. Collector grade. grade. Yeah. Like, I mean, be, behind you, there's several. Yeah, can you imagine a better group, like a more prestigious group of authors to be in? Like it's no for I, our I, industry. Yeah, they, I mean they've been. Dolph yeah. Goldsmith and I have the same publisher. You know <laughs> that kind of thing. What um, a nice guy! But Blake Stevens dies. Yeah, and I talked to some of the other publishing companies, Schiffer and Wet Dog, Anthony Vanderlinden, and just none of them are a good fit. Like Vanderlinden's not looking for new books. Uh, Schiffer maybe, but like I kind of wanted to do a something fancy, something really cool, high quality like a Vickers guide. So I'm like, I'm griping about this to James while we're doing photography and it occurs to us. Yeah. Something looks beautiful. Who made that book? That's an amazing looking book. I did. (laughs) No. So this is you guys. Yes, that is. Oh, here's the camera here. So thinking it was over there. That's our second book. Yeah. The second, um, this is the second one? Second one we published. Um, that is written by Jonathan Ferguson, who is the Keeper of Arms and Artillery at the Royal British Royal Armories, which is definitely the best job title ever. Yeah, that seems important. Yeah. And so yeah, there's some HK stuff. Yep. So anyway, we're talking about it. And like, it occurs to us that I have, I'm doing a manuscript. James is doing photography. James has the, the knowledge infrastructure of how to do book publishing. Like, let's, uh, why don't we do this ourselves? You, you see this gold on here? So oh, yeah. cool. You, yeah. don't, you just don't get that everywhere. Yeah, exactly. Oh, so cool. Spine hubs. Like, oh. Yeah, I love it. I, I'm really happy with what we've put together. But it occurs to us, like, we don't need, I don't need to use a publishing company. Like, we can come up with our own. We'll just make our own. Strippers and Coke, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's not what you named it, though. No. Uh, and we also, Same. so we also have uh, Nick Jensen Jones, who got involved with us as an editor. Uh, so we have basically... Where is he from? Uh, he is Australian. 
I don't know him. So what makes him an expert? Um, he is a small modern small arms researcher, and he's done a lot of conflict. Uh, conflict zone small arms reporting and oh, research. Okay, yeah. Like you want to know what guns are being trafficked in Libya during the Libyan civil war. Nick's big in on that. Um, Nick was our editor for this book. Um, Nick did a lot of the editing on my, on Chuspota Famas. Uh, very talented. So the three of us together, like, yeah, between us, we've got all the skills to make the, what was it? I think we, we should have called it like literally the world's best publishing company. <laughs> <laughs> Would have been a great title. Yeah. That's what I would have done. So, so, yeah, it starts off because I'm working with Rupley um, on a Vickers Guidebook. Yeah, it's easy to tell his photos. Yeah. I mean, I those know. Vickers books are just... And they're literally unparalleled. Uh, unparalleled. Yeah, the quality of them. And then these books, I love what you guys are doing with, um, yeah, just a fancy, yeah. and you old-looking book. I don't know why no one else bothers to do them, but you can make a book that has great info and great pictures and just good production quality. Yeah. So it's great. So you guys started doing that and you've done series of stuff or, or you're working on it. Yep. We have so what all is there so far. Uh, so we've got Chasse de Famas, which was mine. Our second one was Thornycroft SA 80 there. British bullpups by Jonathan. Uh, third book is pistols of the warlords, which is on Chinese warlord era, domestic handguns that are just, I got to get that one. So much weird. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I'll give you the scoop. I have just heard yesterday evening. I think those books are shipping from the printer next week. Now, when this publishes, I'm not sure it, they may have already shipped by the time people see this, but, um, so that'll be available as soon as it gets over here. So COVID has affected all uh, that, just like everything else in the world. <sighs> Yeah. Yeah. When people complain about supply chain nonsense, I totally understand now. Yeah. Like, we tried to publish that book in the U.S. initially. We oh, talked. Yeah. Chaspo de Famas, we published in the U.S. We went back to that printer uh, and asked them for a quote for the Warlord Pistol book. And they declined to even give us a quote. They didn't even want to try it. Um, through our agent trying to find other printers, we we determined that there is, in fact, literally not enough paper in North America for us to print that book here. So we just put in, we just sent off to the printer our fourth book, which is on Japanese imperial swords. And that book, we have a five month wait to get the paper to print it. Wow. Like it's, it's so strange. When we did Chasse de Famas, these kind of issues would have been un, like, not a, like this isn't conceivably a problem we're going to run into. Like, really, not enough paper? Yeah, that's insane. So, hopefully, it'll clear up by the time we have the next one or two ready to go. But. Well, bless you, Thomas. Well, so. uh, how do you guys pick? Because, I mean, that's some pretty obscure stuff, some of those. Yeah, absolutely. Um, some of it is what I personally am interested in. Yeah. That's the French and the Chinese Warlord pistols. Um, we had the Warlord pistol book was spurred by having access to a huge, like the best worldwide collection of those pistols. So there's a guy in the U.S. who spent 35 years collecting Chinese Warlord pistols. Like he would literally buy every single one of them he ever found. How many? I didn't even know this was a thing. How many Warlords were there? Yes, <laughs> uh, well, there were a lot of Warlords. Yeah, can you explain uh, this that Warlord pistol? Okay, so... A uh, short version is the Qing dynasty, the imperial dynasty in China runs until 1911 when there is the Chinese revolution, uh, which is intended to like westernize China. Uh, in fact, some Sun Yat-sen, Dr. Sun Yat-sen, one of the original guys who ran the revolution, 
American educated, huge fan of the U.S. Constitution. He wanted to turn China into a country on the model of the United States. He did a great job. He did a decent <laughs> job. The problem was um, power corrupts. Shortly before, well, in the, like the 10, 20 years before the revolution, the Chinese government had decided to modernize its military. But in order to save money, they had all the individual provinces essentially fund their own new armies. So think of it as like the U.S., but we don't have an army, but we have all the National Guards. And so as soon as the central government falls apart and there's a power struggle, every province has an army that is loyal to its general Mm. and nobody else. So what you end up with, the short version, what you end up with is like the U.S. Civil War, except there are, uh, instead of two sides, there are like 12 sides. And it goes for 20 years. And all of the alliances shift. It was as common when two warlords got into a fight, you might have a battle and one side win, or it was kind of equally common that one side would bribe the other side's general or a, a, you know, an officer at some level and just have troops defect to the other side because the troops were loyal to the officers, not to a nation or a principal. And so it's like, it's an incredibly complicated period of time to try and study. It's like street gangs on a bigger level. Exactly, yeah. yeah it's like street gangs, but they have arsenals. Um, there were half a dozen really significant Western-style arsenals in China at that time that had been put together. Like, the idea was this national army, each each province or series of set of provinces, is going to be able to do its own arms to, arms production and training and ammunition production. So there are a bunch of arsenals set up. And, of course, all these warlords keep... You know, now they'll do their own arms production to keep this war going. Uh, and the, the factories were generally pretty good quality, especially the ones set up with a lot of Western tooling and Western engineering assistance. But you also have a lot of small-scale shops making guns. And actually, probably the most interesting bit, and I, you'll appreciate this, a factory is going to get an order for 50,000 rifles, so, you know, hypothetically. So you set up a production line, right? And you do Western style, the, the American style of manufacture. You're going to make interchangeable parts. You're going to make 50,000 of every part and then assemble 50,000 rifles. Well, pistols are far less important to these army structures. It's a lot of enlisted troops and just a handful of officers. And the pistols are ornamental, really. And so they'll get 50,000 rifles ordered and 50 pistols, maybe. So do you set up a production line for 50 pistols? Is that efficient? Like, you run a gun factory. No. No. What they did is they take, like, the 10 best gunsmiths. And, okay, in during the time when we're making these rifles, each one of you guys needs to make five pistols or 10 pistols. And so every pistol is handmade. And, they, and to whatever level of quality that gunsmith is capable of. And some of them are really good. Some of them are maybe not so good. Uh, and so every one of these pistols is different. Like, you can see that the basic structure is the same, but the, the fine details, compl- every sp- single pistol is different. Hmm. And they had a lot of indigenous designs. Some of them are copies of mostly FN-1900s and C-96 Mausers, but then they'd come up with all their own indigenous designs. They'd, you know, they're blowback pistols. It's not that complicated. But they'd pull elements from C-96 and FN stuff. Like, I have an FN-1900 with a hammer on it. The hammer doesn't do anything. It doesn't move. It is a milled part of the slide. But it looks <laughs> like, kind of looks like a C96 hammer. Weird. You know, guns have hammers. They're Weird. selling these to people who have no gun culture history and experience. Well, 
how many of uh, these pistols is this guy collected? He had somewhere between 250 and 300 of them. And that was, so that was the bulk of what we photographed for the book. There were a couple other smaller collections that I was able to handle or at least get pictures of, including a couple of small ones in universities in China. And that was what I was able to determine from the other collections is this one guy's collection encompassed everything. We have basically no records about any of this stuff. We don't know exactly who, when, where, or why, you know, or who they made them for, that kind of thing. But I know that there are basically no major types of warlord pistols that are not covered by this guy's collection. Hmm. That's cool. That's yeah. so interesting. Yeah. So, so ridiculous. And so I've got access to this collection. We're like, this is, this is a book. This collection is going to disperse, and it'll probably never be assembled together in the same place again. Nobody knows anything about these guns. We don't have records, but if we do essentially an art catalog with the information that we can yeah, put together. sort of an archive that you guys build and put together. With that many of them, you can categorize the guns, where normally you're looking at one or two or three or maybe 10, but even with 10, you don't have context. You don't know if what you're looking at is common or uncommon. And what we were able to do is divide the Chinese domestic designs into like six or seven specific models. And you can see the similarities. And now you can take any one gun that you run into by itself and you can say, oh, this is yeah, type fits C. into this category. Right. That's interesting. That's cool, yeah, I, I had no idea about any of this. No, initially when you said Warlord Pistols, I'm thinking of similar to like the Mexican cartels where they're taking guns that already exist and they're just decorating them essentially. <laughs> so there's like 15 or whatever, but no. not in the full scale production that's right. side. That's crazy. I wish I had a preprint copy here. I could show you, but no, I can't wait to get it now. It sounded yeah. ridiculous to me when I heard, but I was like, Oh, it's a cool title. There'll yeah. be some cool stuff in there. Yeah. I'll get it. But now oh, yeah, yeah, understanding that's what it was and was going on. Yeah. So that's our third book. Um, and that's like, that's one that I put together because I had access to the stuff and I found it interesting. Thornycroft is a manuscript that we got from Jonathan. Mm -hmm. Like he is a British firearms curator who's mm -hmm. interested in guns. Um, he wrote that book and we published it. Yeah. So this is uh, uh, just, well, it says on the title or on the cover there, British bullpup firearms. Yep. So th that was an interesting road that they took and, and how it's ended up, you know, in the end with H and K doing all the, the reverb of all that and yeah. helping stuff for it. Yeah. Um, so fourth book is Japanese swords. That's another one that we got the manuscript from a serious collector of Japanese Imperial swords. Yeah. So those are our two sources, like either for head stamp, either I write it or it's a manuscript submission we get from someone on the outside. So we can't always predict what our subject matter is going to be. I find it more interesting yeah. because yeah. you know, you know, like your book on French firearms, you know, that's something that I got to have. But if you did like, 12 books on French firearms. Right. I probably would lose interest, honestly. Hold but on, I need to change. <laughs> <laughs> I was planning on the others. So, uh. But, you, you know, doing all just the variety of interesting stuff. But I think it goes with what you were saying and what your interest is in firearms. Probably why your YouTube channel is so big. It, it's like you, you have the book, I'm sure, Firearms Curioso. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So just like all of these odd things, but taking that on a bigger scale to... All this weird stuff that's been done in firearms. 
But but what you find and what you'll find in here is is, is what I want to know. Okay, how did they end up here? Like where did you start and how did it end up? And yeah, it produces all kinds of odd things. Yeah. Like but understanding the reason why or what the requirement was or how it changed. Um, so often there's some piece of the story that you know you're looking at a gun and you're like, why on earth did this? They do this incredibly stupid thing. Well, there's almost always context for it. Yeah. Like. Why did they get HK to rebuild all the guns? Well, British Aerospace owned HK. Yep. It was a British company, not a German company. Your metal HK mags for the 416s, that's where they came from. You know, they did yep. steel mags because I think, isn't this true, <laughs> like, like the, their, um, what, the oh. SA-80, it's like <sighs> the mag sets a little too low. Well, the mags were made by Radway Green, and I think they were made out of, like, recycled pie pans. Here's they some. are the... The crappiest AR mags you've ever seen. I'm They're, trying to think. Yeah, there was HK a, doing steel, even though they're heavy and all, because in the steel you can make very thin, so you can get the right. presentation of the rounds a little bit higher, which helped with reliability. So then I think they just use those for the 416 because they developed those mags already. Yeah, they spend all the time on a reliable, good magazine, as long as you don't leave it in the rain and let the follower rust to the body. Oops. Yeah, that's a problem. Steel mags, uh, the aluminum mags, I like. I can't remember what I'm thinking of. There was it was a British-made steel mag that there was some sort of controversy with import over here. Um, I'll find it at some point. I'll find it. And Is this like Mustangs of New Jersey? No, 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 no. I'll find <laughs> it. Um, yeah. So I mean, just all that stuff is fascinating, and to me, I like that it's you know because I, I I you know and I haven't seen your collection, but you know like my my collection yours is probably similar. I have everything from like you know. 150 year old knife pistols <laughs> to belt buckle pistols oh. to belt fed machine guns to 20 millimeter tank rifles like yeah, i see, just love firearms i don't care my collection would absolutely bore you to tears unless you're oh. really invested in bertiers i've oh. got a lot of bertiers so it's really just the you. french rifles yeah. uh, i mean no one, and no one cares about french rifles well they will would you making books about <laughs> it i mean you start talking but you know another part is, is what we said earlier is as the environment's really changed and the collectability, whether it's the ammo or the firearms and the prices, if you, uh, I, I like all guns. It just doesn't matter. So for me, if it's ones that I can afford, well, that's way interesting than just looking in at pictures of guns. Like if I can afford, because yeah, I mean, I collected all of throughout like the early nineties, all of the military surplus bolt action rifles that I could get for under a hundred bucks. Nice. You know, and that was just, for me, if I was ever anywhere and there was a good example and it was under $100 or less, I just bought it. it and, and I knew then, well, I don't care about, you know, like whatever it is, this Polish rifle now, but I might in 20 or 30 years from now. And it's like, I'm not going to miss $100 long term. Right. But I can get, you know, like a military firearm. Like That's a pretty cool thing. So I have like a bunch of that. And my son, from the time he was just, four or five he loved world war one and world war two stuff where i never really cared that much and that stuff we go to i take him to gun shows he's six seven years old and that's all he wanted like he would want a mauser or you know uh, just whatever it was any he, he'd find some bolt action military rifle he thought was cool that he'd seen you know on a in a movie or something and that's what he would want like, way easier than buying machine guns yeah yeah um, so I ended up with a lot of that stuff, um, you know, and a lot of it I, I don't know much about still to this day, but I've got them and they were affordable. 
Um, but the Curioso stuff is, it, it's always intrigued me too. The disguise guns, like all of this stuff, I just find okay. fascinating. But, okay, so with this said, so James reached out to me about a silencer book. And I guess he'd probably talk to you ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. And so why did you guys think that the silencer book would be interesting to people? What, what's your opinion on that? To me, the, the fundamental core of, of what makes that book interesting is the variety and, and completeness of your Maxim silencer collection. Wow. Maxim was he, was, he invented the thing. Like, literally, he invented the silencer. He invented the silencer that's on the back of your car, too. Yeah. And he's the one who put him on your car. Uh, and there's, again, there's just nothing written about oh, those. Oh, yeah. We photographed some for the book that I have, yeah. I think. Yeah, some actual Maxim industrial engine mufflers. Yeah, for some of the first Ford automobiles. Yeah. But there's nothing written out there. It's, he's, it's such a fundamental part of firearms history, uh, or a foundational part of firearms history, but no one knows anything. So let's find out more, and then let's take that through. I think what we're going to pro- primarily cover are uh, technological developments in silencers, which frankly, there aren't that many. Um, and then military application of silencers. And we've kind of got a series of general eras and Maxim is the first Maxim originates it. And then the Maxim era pretty much ends with 1934. Yeah. When the NFA puts a $200 tax on what was essentially a two to $8 item, it's dead. And it dies so completely that the U.S. does very little with silencers in World War II. We have a few things for OSS. There's the some of the twenty two pistols. There's the grease gun. But really, like, not much. Frankly, the Russians do way more yeah. than we do. The Germans do way more than we do. But then by Vietnam, like, you, you have a second wave of American silencers in Vietnam with psionics, uh, with Warbell. The, the attempts to suppress M16s, M14s, uh, some of the pistols. And that sort of, I, I feel like that reinvigorates the industry. And then you kind of transition into a global war on terror period where the, the military actually starts seriously looking at silencers. Um, and it's around that time that the internet makes these civilian accessible. People yeah. realize like, oh wait, they're not just illegal? Yeah. Uh, and then we get to the present day where they're becoming really pretty commonplace. You know, it, it is fascinating to see what government regulation did because I think everything out there, most stuff today is still based on his designs. Yeah. And the Maxim silencers, which, you know, we'll, we'll shoot some today. I would say up until, yeah, about, well, may, so, maybe the late 90s. The Maxim silencers were better than everything that was done up until then. You know, for World War II, for Vietnam especially. It's like one of those weird Dark Ages things. We don't, in today's day and age, we don't think that we'll ever actually lose knowledge. Like, there's nothing that they could do 100 years ago that we just can't figure out. But for silencers, that's kind of what happened. Like, in 34, everyone just stops, and and 20 years later, they've forgotten it all. Yeah, I mean, government regulation. Imagine how advanced it would be if, you know, silencers would probably be this big and twice as efficient if we didn't have government regulation for, yeah, you know, until basically inflation just made the $200 tax not that big a deal. Right. Yeah. I mean, hopefully with if the e-form thing works out and, you know, we've seen where people are getting transfers back sometimes in a week or two. 
but it seems like they've gone down to 60 days now thereabouts. It's helping. That's good. That's um, going to help long term, especially if they can get that down to, you know, somewhere close to an instant background check. It's it's stupid that there are NFA items in the uh, first place, you know, even or that it's classified as a firearm. Right. Mm, yeah. 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 Maybe like long term, we really ought to fix that. But yeah. I yeah. I, I mean, it'll be possible to happen. I don't know. I hope it does in my lifetime. I'm hopeful. I'd love it to happen tomorrow. Oh my God. I've been, I've been waiting 30 years. Yeah. So yeah, just the idea that it's going to have to be a health thing. If they were invented today, they wouldn't be banned. They'd be required. Like you'd get fined for going out shooting without a silencer because it's a health hazard and it's a nuisance. And Oh yeah. Ask my neighbors at my range. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting. You told so, me a great story about going to the range once uh, with a girlfriend and having the guy on the next lane at an indoor range shooting like a 300 wind mag. Oh. And what you told me was you're like, this thing was just so incredibly obnoxious that you you finally stopped, went over and talked to the guy and you're like, look, if I give you a silencer, will you stop shooting that thing? Yeah. And he's like, uh, what? And like front of the range, the sales counter, you're like, I make these, pick one. Stop shooting while we're here. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I mean, it's so obnoxious. I don't like indoor ranges as it is, but to shoot without a suppressor. Yeah. Like, it doesn't even need to be a big caliber. Like, guys will have an 11 inch AR with a muzzle brake on it. And you just, it makes you throw up. Yeah. Yeah. It's horrible. Well, people don't, you know, we were talking about 22 rifles last night, and I got like one of the savages that's threaded for a maxim, you know, a little pump action savage, 26 inch barrel. (laughs) <laughs> that would subsonic ammo with no silencers, like 120, 121 dB. It's quieter than most silenced 22 pistols. But people don't even realize how loud a 22 pistol is. A 22 pistol can be, you know, 154 dB. You know, it's incredibly loud. Mm. You know, it's not much uh, quieter than a 9 millimeter pistol. Like, you need silencers. Yeah. Uh, it makes it so much more enjoyable. Yeah, it is interesting that they mandate, the government mandates silencers for everything that makes noise except a gun. Yeah, and And in that case, it's prohibited. (laughs) Not strictly, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, that is. Well, um, we got to come up with a name for the book. We do still need a title. Yeah. Yeah. I know that. So when do we we think the book's going to be out? What's your guess? It's hard to predict at that point. We've done all the photography for it. So it's easy. All I have to do now is write it. Um, I would like to get most of it written in the next couple of months, but I don't want to go out there and, and guarantee that. Um, we do have some other books that are in the works that may come through first. So anything that you can say, what are they? Um, well, why not? Does anyone listen to this? Not that many people. people. All right. So no one listens to this. So I can say Jay and Thomas's parents pretty much. Uh, so that the other book that I'm working on personally right now is on Finnish small arms. But that one's going to take a while. Be cool. Um, the the other one that we have coming up quickly, I think, is on Collier revolvers, which are the first revolvers to where like where the the uh, operating the hammer automatically indexes the cylinder. Mm-hmm. They predate Colt. There's some fascinating legal issues between Colt and and Elisha Collier. Like Colt should have lost, but Colt had really good lawyers, and Collier had terrible lawyers, Sounds and good. so. The, the good lawyers won instead of the, the truth. Kids, spend your money on good attorneys. Trust me. Um, but 
we have uh, an author, a guy by the name of Ben Nicholson, who has been studying these guns exhaustively. He's a really cool academic guy. He's been studying them for years and years and years and has a fantastic manuscript. It will be the last word on Collier's. Um, we're looking at it's. I think it's going to be two volumes and about seven hundred pages. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, huge. a lot of content. Yes, someone um, that's passionate about that and massively well researched, academically stringent, really good content on some really interesting guns that people aren't very familiar with. So that's the other one that's like it's the thing's written. It's just in the editing process right now, and we'll see how the timing works out between that and the silencer book. Hmm. I'm excited about that. Yeah. I'm stoked on Warlord pistols. I'll be <laughs> waiting for that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so the, oh, those will be available soon then. Yeah, Warlord gun pistols books. We did the pre-sale an embarrassingly long time ago now, but um, we're probably looking at, I expect about two months on the water uh, for them to get here. So uh, late summer, early fall, we should be shipping those. Nice. So we'll make a formal announcement once we actually have a specific delivery date, which hopefully will be in a week. But well, can okay. So you guys do a pre-sale, yep. and you do that um, through. Well, it's is it headstamppublishing.com? Uh, headstamppublishing.com is our website. Um, when we do pre-sales, we'll do a like a month-long pre-sale on Kickstarter. Once the Kickstarter campaign ends, we still offer the books for pre-sale on our website, mm-hmm. but there are usually some discounts and some special offers on Kickstarter. Yeah, so. You can go right now and still order a copy of Warlords, and as soon as they arrive, you'll get it shipped in the very, you know, in the first batch with all the pre-orders. Oh. I got to do that. Yes, you do. That's, yeah, that's, that's cool. A, that's a cool one. Yeah, there's that's a, a cool one. there's a company uh, called Five Fifty BC Publishing, and they do similar stuff, but at a very uh, less in-depth level. Um, but I've got a couple of their books, and the guy's done really cool stuff with. Um, like the favelas in in Brazil, the guns that they're carrying around. He most recently did one. There was a, there was a fully full magazine, a fully loaded nine mil pistol in a uh, federal prison in the United States, and the prisoners were filming it on like <laughs> smuggled in cameras and stuff and racking rounds. And he did a whole video series on it. <laughs> like this dude does really cool stuff. That's um, interesting. Super Neat. crazy. The stuff that he can find, like the favela mafia stuff. Um, he gave disposable cameras and digital cameras and like cell phone cameras gave them to these uh, criminals and basically said, document whatever you want and I'll return. Give me the, give me the cameras and everything and we'll put it in a book. And he did a whole book on all. So all the photos are from the guys on the ground. It's really cool. Interesting. Your finished book, are you going to cover modern stuff like the Valmet? the the AK <laughs> by my standards the finished book is all modern stuff cuz Finland hasn't wow. has only existed since 1918 yeah, yeah. 1918 very modern mm-hmm. very modern that's when uh, stoner did the M16 i think yeah the last version <laughs> yeah uh so yeah coverage is going to be i'm going to do rifles pistols submachine guns light machine guns so everything everything it's going to be now Finland used like every gun on the planet Mm-hmm. Um, I am going to cover in the book ones that were either manufactured or mechanically modified in Finland. So I'm going to cover all the Mosins. I'm going to cover the Lug- Finnish Lugers because they, they rebarreled them. They made some changes to sights and grips and stuff. But I'm not going to cover, say, the Carcanos, the Shoshas, uh, <coughs> Browning High Powers. You know, those are guns where Finland bought some, and the most they would ever do is stamp SA on the gun. They bought Shoshas? Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
in fact, most of the Shoshas in the U.S. are finished surplus ones. Really? Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you before, Max, I watched him make a magazine for one. Oh, cool. He's just shoved aluminum foil up in the <laughs> up in the mag, well, like up into the receiver, and that's how he formed it. Okay. He pulled it out and then looked at it and then made a magazine for it. That's a impressive. Guy. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they were smart guys back then. Hmm. So, I mean, it just goes on. Like, they use Beretta 34s and Beretta 1915s oh, nice. and Browning High Powers and literally everything that was out there that they could get their hands on, they bought. And there's too much of that for me to try and cover it all. Well, do they so. make their own guns now? Yeah. So, um, so their military, do they use finished-made rifles currently? Yes. So the primary issue rifle is the, the M62, which we call the Valmet here. Yeah. Um, it's an, so that's an still AK derivative. Gun. Yes. Yeah. However... So Finland has a massive reserve contingent, reserve army. Um, they have mandatory conscription and they have reserve service. And they have, so they have to have a war stock of what if we mobilize everyone? We need like 400,000 guns and they don't have that many Valmets. Uh, in, when the wall came down, they actually bought a ton of East German surplus AKs. Oh, really? And they bought a lot of Chinese type 56s because they were cheap. Yeah. And those are the guns that go into the war reserve in case of basically Russian invasion, which is the only thing the Finnish military exists to do. <laughs> They're not worried about the Swedes? No. Okay. No. Well, do the, they, um, so all the active duty guys have the Valmets. Yeah, so they have the M62s, they have an RK95. So M, I should say RK is the, the Finnish abbreviation for like assault rifle. Mm. So it's you could call it RK62 or M62 for model. Um, the, the model 95 rifles are sort of a vaguely product improved version. They added a rifle grenade launcher, different folding stock and optics mount. Their special forces guys are kind of doing the standard thing that NATO does. Yep. Four sixteens, ARs, um, their machine guns. They have a domestic, uh, it's a copy of the check 5257 of all things. That's the KVKK 62 and they have, or had PKs, PKMs. Yep. Um, and then I think they've got FN mags. I'm not not as strong on the, the current use stuff. Ooh. But they Ooh. just adopted a 308 AR as a designated marksman's rifle. Oh, really? Yeah, that uh, Tika or Sako are going to be making. Tika. What do, Tika. What do they use for a sidearm? Uh, right now, I think it is FN DAs. They adopted the FN double action in 1980. They might have replaced it with Glocks by now. Hmm. Sure. Uh, um, there's currently an arms procurement program that they're doing um, in in tandem with Sweden, and they're I think they're going to both adopt the same new rifle. So it, frankly, I mean, best bet would probably be basically a four sixteen, but we don't know yet what that, yeah. that trial will come up with, and that'll go really well with their upcoming NATO membership. What do you think about that? I think it's great for Finland. Um, yeah, it'd be nice if Russia wants to invade again. It is really interesting to read a detailed history of Finland, especially after 1945. They walked such a knife edge through the whole Cold War. Of They, they wanted economic ties to the West, but they were dependent on keeping Russia at bay, like diplomatically at bay. They had to keep Russia happy or Russia could just walk in and turn them into the Finnish so- Socialist Republic like all the other Balkan states. And they had some prime ministers who did a a really good job of just that balancing act back and forth. 
like convincing Russia that they're not a threat to Russia and at the same time building economic ties with the West where there's, you know, actual money, food. Yeah, nice to have that, especially in the winter. Working body armor. Mm-hmm.